0: We have heard God speak to us in various ways in both the Old and the New Testaments. Let's now summarize together our faith as it comes to us in Lord's Day 8 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read responsively, question and answer 24 and 25. Concerning the articles of the Apostles' Creed, the question asks, How are these articles divided into three parts? God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our deliverance, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. Since there is only one divine being, why do you speak of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because that is how God has revealed Himself in His Word. These three distinct persons are one true eternal God. Let's go to the Lord now and ask him to open the eyes of our hearts to understand his truth. Our Heavenly Father, we ask you to look upon us in grace as we look away from ourselves and into the face of your Son, whom you have appointed as our mediator and Savior in heaven. As all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in your Son, guide us by your Holy Spirit into the true understanding of the doctrines of Christ. May our meditation upon his truth produce in us the fruit of righteousness, to the glory and exaltation of his name, the instruction and building up of this congregation, and the salvation of the lost through our witness. We pray this in the name and favor of your well-beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and in dependence on his Holy Spirit. Amen. Last week, we were concentrating on true faith, true faith. And we learned that true faith is composed of knowledge, agreement, and trust. You have to know something about God and his son, Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit. You have to agree that these things are true, that they really happen, and that God has not lied to you about them. But especially, you must trust It's a wholehearted trust. And the Apostles' Creed is that basic summary of what you must trust in. Behold the simplicity of our faith. It is profound, that's true, but it is very simple. You must trust in this very simple and brief statement that arises from the text of Holy Scripture. And today we begin explaining what that creed means. What are the non-negotiables of the Christian religion, beginning with the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? A few hundred years ago, it became popular among certain branches of Christian theologians to say that the doctrine of the Trinity might be true, but even if it's true, it's really not very useful, and so it doesn't matter if people really understand it or believe it or grow in their knowledge of it, because it doesn't... It doesn't really matter all that much. It doesn't make a big difference. Well, today, we're going to spend our time beginning to grasp why this teaching is so important for us to believe, not just for the sake of right doctrine, although that is important enough as it is, but also because of its great usefulness to us as Christians. In fact... If the doctrine of the Trinity is really not all that important, then the Christian faith is useless. It is useless to you apart from this doctrine. It's just made up stuff. It's just mythology. Uh, It's a dime a dozen among the religions and mythologies of the world. This doctrine anchors us to the truth and the power and the usefulness of Of what scripture tells us about God. Without it we have no assurance of faith. We have no comfort in the gospel. We don't have any real guidance in obedience. No clarity in our prayers. We have no clear object in our worship. And so with especially Matthew 28 as our main guide. Let's see how this glorious doctrine anchors us as Christians. First we consider the oneness of God the oneness, the unity of God. The doctrine of the Trinity is summarized probably most clearly by saying that we believe in one God in three persons. Or that God is one in essence and also three in persons. He is one in essence and three in persons. And we see this clearly and wonderfully in Matthew 28 verse 19. Here just before Jesus ascends into heaven he commissions his church to do certain things while he is away. He says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit. The first thing to notice here is that these tasks are to be done in the name. In the name. And very often in Scripture, when something is said to be done in someone's name, it is being done on the authority of that person. That was actually in our our text in Mark chapter 9 this morning. Whoever receives one of these little ones in my name. Or uh, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And this task that Jesus is commissioning his church to do is to be done in the authority, in the name of the God who is sending them out to do it. Here we recognize that the three persons are named, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there is one name. It is singular. Jesus commands that baptism with waters to be performed on the authority of God, who is one. He is a unity. A unity. Now, this idea of God's essence being one and not many. He's one. He's not made. He's not complex and made up of a bunch of parts. That idea is just classic Bible. It's just what you find all over the Bible. The ancient confession of the Israelites is called the Shema. That's the Hebrew word for listen or hear. As we heard in our call to worship this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the the confession of faith that was on the lips and in the hearts of every Israelite boy and girls. They were raised in the faith, brought into the, the covenant community. This was... Their identity was bound up in this God who is one. It's in the law. It's in all the prophets. The prophets cry out that there is only one God and there is no other beside him. There is one God. So he's one in terms of the only God. And he is one in terms of being singular and a unity in and of himself. And this is dealt with very clearly in the New Testament as well. As we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 earlier, Paul there is dealing with a big problem in the city of Corinth about Christians who are sitting down and having table fellowship, sharing a meal with pagans, which is fine, but the meat at the table has been offered to false gods, which is not fine. So it creates a problem in the ancient city of Corinth. And he is dealing with this by talking about, are there actually other gods? Well, no, we know, we understand, he says. There are no other gods. Not not really, technically, are there other gods. He says, there is no God but one. There is one God and one Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 and verse 6. Clearly has the Shema in mind from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so our catechism has faithfully handed it down to us that there is only one divine being as revealed in his word. He is the infinite God with no beginning and no end. He is not composed of parts, but a perfect and pure spiritual being. And we are baptized into his name and on his authority. That is the oneness, the unity of God. But secondly, we also have to understand and begin to grasp the threeness of God. The threeness of God. As soon as we come to grips with the fact of God's oneness, Jesus confronts us with something more in his commission from Matthew chapter 28. Though it is one name, it is one name. The God identified by that name is called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again, we're talking about God's authority here. Jesus is saying that baptism is to be administered on the authority of the one God, but that authority is said to belong to all three persons baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, this one God who is signified by the one name, the singular name, also must be three. God, brothers and sisters, God has not become this. He did not become this sometime when Jesus, the Son of God, came came to earth. Um, He has not developed into this three-part thing. He doesn't become anything. He just is. He just is. What Scripture reveals to us is that this great mystery that God is one and He is three, or better, that He is one in three and three in one, that has simply been now revealed to us with a greater clarity in the New Testament than there was in the Old Testament. That the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet each person is distinct. Not separated, not divided, but distinct. They share the same essence and glory equally. And each of the three persons, because they share this one essence, all must be worshipped and adored as God. And when the three persons act, they act together in perfect unity. There is a distinction, and yet they are never separate when they act. Never. Back to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 again. Here's what he says. A little more filled in now. There is no God but one, and he goes on to say, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, uh, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist and for whom we exist. The one God and Lord, who share the same essence are nevertheless Father and Son. It is one God, one Lord, which the Shema tells us is just the same being. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, is yet also named for us clearly both Father and Son. There is no getting around this. This is what the Scriptures demand us to confess about God. And now that this is revealed to us with more clarity in the New Testament, we begin to recognize that not only is the the oneness of God all over the Bible, but the threeness of God is all over the Bible. When the priest Aaron blesses the people of Israel in Numbers chapter 6, it is the Lord who blesses, the Lord who keeps you, the Lord who causes his face to shine upon you. The, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. And yet Aaron says... God says through Moses, that is through Aaron's blessing, that it is his singular name that is placed upon the people of Israel to bless them. And so he is not just the Lord, but three times he is the Lord. He's not just the holy God. He's called that many times. But he is, as the cherubim and seraphim tell us, the holy, holy, holy God. Why not four holies? Why not ten holies? Why is it the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, and holy and holy and holy? It is because what was foggy and, and somewhat concealed in the Old Testament is now with blazing brilliance revealed to us fully in the incarnation of the Son of God and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That God is true and eternal, existing within Himself as three distinct and unified persons. The Blessed Father, His only begotten Son, and the Holy Spirit who proceeds from them both. He is both one and He is three. Now we have to begin to understand the worship of this God. Now we have begun to speak about the doctrine and its the different parts of this doctrine. Now we have to understand why it is practical and useful to us. And why our faith is and our piety, our devotion to the Lord, stands or falls on this doctrine. One writer says, no topic of study is more rewarding or more challenging than the doctrine of the Trinity. And that is true. The, uh, the yield that it brings, the great dividends of this doctrine are infinite because the object of your study in this particular doctrine, is the infinite God. But it will cause your brain to hurt. It will leave you scratching your head. And we are not to stop there. We are meant to come back to it after our brains have healed and offer ourselves back to this same God and ask Him to show us, as He's revealed Himself in Scripture, His glory. It is very rewarding, well, maybe you agree with the challenging part and haven't begun to understand the rewarding part yet very understandable, very understandable. Uh, you might be thinking that every, most of what we've said so far is you know seems purely theoretical, maybe it's interesting to some, uh, but you're not really you're not really grasping of what real practical use it is to you maybe those those uh kind of left-leaning theologians of a few hundred years ago are, are starting to make some sense to you, and they say, ah, take it or leave it. It doesn't, it doesn't really affect things. Um, you have to give yourself over to this teaching and let it grow in your heart and let it begin to ruminate so that you understand over time, with the help of the saints with whom you worship the same God, begin to understand its glory and its usefulness. The the usefulness and the great reward of this teaching is most evident in our worship of God. For instance, let's just take one of the most prominent parts of our worship, prayer. Prayer is one of the best ways that we worship and enjoy God. It is how we say thank you to him. It is how we ask him for the things that we need. It is how we confess our sins and apologize to him for our failures. Prayer is how billions of Christians over the centuries have gotten through the the darkest times of life. It is how they've given praise and thanksgiving to God when they are flying high. Okay. Who are you praying to? And what's actually happening when you're praying? Because billions of people claim to be praying to someone or something. What makes it different for you if you claim to be Christians? What's what's really happening here when we pray? Scripture reveals that when you pray, you are enjoying a fellowship with your Father in heaven. All prayer could be summed up in the way that Scripture does when it says... Abba, Father, when our hearts cry out to God and call upon Him as Father. That's why Jesus taught us to pray beginning with our Father. Prayer is a unique fellowship with the Father of all glory. It is the Father alone, not the Son and the Spirit, who is your Heavenly Father. But you cannot approach this Father... Unless you have been adopted by Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way into fellowship with this Father in Heaven. In fact, apart from Jesus Christ, His Son, He isn't your Father. He is purely your Judge. You only have access to the Father through His eternally begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And it is the Son, not the Father or the Spirit... Who has taken on human flesh and shed his blood for you? The Father did not die on the cross. The Spirit did not die on the cross. It is the Son of God alone who has come and and taken on human flesh and made himself able to be killed to shed his blood for you in order to make you a son or a daughter of God. Otherwise, you can't pray. See, otherwise your prayers don't work. They don't go anywhere. They don't make it to the Father of lights from whom uh, and with whom there is no shadow of changing. You must be adopted by this Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, His Son. And it is through the Son of God that you therefore enjoy the Father in prayer. Okay. But the Son of God shed His blood 2,000 years ago. Why does that what what bearing does that have on you in Madison, Indiana, in 2023? Well, it has no bearing upon your life unless the blessed Holy Spirit of God applies the saving blood of Jesus Christ to you and makes you a son and daughter. Then the Father is your Father, and you may pray to Him. And so, without the Father's grace, you cannot pray. Without the Son of God dying in your place, you cannot pray. And without the Holy Spirit applying the saving blood of Jesus Christ to you, you cannot pray. And if you confuse the persons, if you confuse the distinct nature of their work on your behalf, if you confuse these things, then you are cutting yourself off from true, wondrous delight in God. Through prayer and through every other kind of worship. It is only with these understandings that all the doctrines of Scripture suddenly come to light. They are illuminated with the glories of heaven for us to see that the Holy Spirit indwells you. The Holy Spirit of Christ Himself dwells within you. And that same Spirit envelops your prayers and perfects them and takes them to God the Father. And then... He brings the Heavenly Father's answers back down. Brothers and sisters, all your worship and communion with God is possible only through the mystery of the Trinity. And turning your back on this doctrine or treating it like it is only for high-minded people, it's for people to argue about. If you were to treat it like that, you will leave your spiritual life skewed, confused, malnourished, and eventually probably in shambles. So brothers and sisters, give yourself over to the lifelong meditation upon this doctrine. We worship and sing to and pray to and confess to and name the one God who is three persons. Learn how to speak about him and to him. Learn how to enjoy him. And there is no better place to start than with this doctrine. Amen. Let us pray. Glorious and merciful Father, we give you thanks for having established your covenant with us. We ask, Father, that you would continue to establish your saints in the faith that has been contended for and passed down to us. And that you would grant us the grace to inwardly digest the food you have given to us that we may hold it in our hearts and instruct our children in your knowledge and fear until we all have reached complete maturity through Christ. All this we ask, gracious Father, in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, who with the Father and the Spirit reigns forever and ever, world without end. Amen.